One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Trumpet, and welcome to Tech Time with Summer's F1. And we have none other than that story, Denizen of the Tech Deep. That's right, Matthew Summerfield, also known as Summer's F1, who's technical editor at motorsport.com. He's come up for air just long enough to share some wisdom with us. But before we get started, I do have to remind you, we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. Might be wrong, but we're first. And we're definitely first because it is Wednesday. Tuesday. It's Wednesday somewhere. Australia. Steve, it's Wednesday there. What's happening in the future? Uh, Summers, welcome back. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you, Matt. I'm just a little bit confused right now, though. Is it the present, the past, or the future? Uh, the answer would be yes, because as we all know, Einstein solved this problem by saying it was all relative to where you were looking from. Perfect. <laughs> and we have a special show today. We are not only going to answer my really annoying 79-part questions, but we have some listener input, including people who have spoken up for the first time, had many questions they were very curious about, but slightly afraid to ask. And even better, Spanners is going to be snoring in our ears the whole podcast. I am just the producer. We'll soon put him to sleep with a tire talk lullaby. I'm awake, I'm wide awake, and you can't prove otherwise. Yes. Well, um, I'd, I'd like to sort of get started here with, uh, I think, a big, important, but a pretty general question, if I may. And it's from, from Patty. And um, I want to ask this question because it's easy to sling jargon that you hear. And there's a lot of jargon in Formula One, and it changes all the time without really understanding it. Now, usually I do that if I want to win a WhatsApp debate with like certain other panel members. Um, but the reality is, uh, Patty asked, 
What is the definition of whole car arrow concept and what makes a good one? So I felt like we talk about it a lot. We probably have a general idea of what's meant by it. But when you use that term or when engineers in Formula One use that term, what are they referencing specifically and, and sort of what goes into, you know, choosing choosing your concept for the season? Is it just like throwing darts at a dartboard, picking stocks, or is there a little bit more involved? I mean, I, I'm not sure that engineers would use that speak as in, you know, whole car concept because they see it from a very different perspective. Um, however, if you imagine at the start of a regulation set, teams will likely look at various different routes to take in order to develop their their concept or their car. Uh, and so that is probably where that definition realistically comes from. So if we imagine travelling back in time, as we've already done once in this show, um, th- back to 2022 and at the start of the regulation set, we had a number of different concepts when it came to uh, the, the way that the cars were set up. So things that were predominantly obvious to people were the side pods. So we've got the downwash ramp side pod that was on the uh, Red Bull Alpine and the Alpha Tauri. We had Ferrari with their bathtub style solution. We had Mercedes with a zero pod. We had a hanging sort of solution uh, with Aston Martin. Uh, And there was a few others uh, uh, amongst that mix. So, when we're at the start of a regulation set, we have many more concepts to, to talk about. But as time goes by and the law of di- diminishing returns starts to appear, teams tend to gravitate towards the solutions that appear to offer the most bang for your buck. And obviously, we're now at the point where everybody's almost at the same sort of concept. Um, and I, I would suspect, and I'm sure we'll cover this later on, but uh, the last team that really doesn't have a full-blown uh, downwash ramp style side pod is uh, Haas. I would call what Ferrari using sort of a uh, halfway concept. Um, but that's where we're sort of at with the aero concept side of things. There's obviously miniature sections to that. So you'll see um, things talked about with front wings and rear wings because there becomes uh, different branches appear on it on the development tree. Uh, and then there becomes individual DNA amongst those uh, different concepts. So it, it's a varied thing. But when we're talking about whole car aero concepts, I think what we're talking about is the likes of when we first start a regulation set and we see that variation up and down the grid of the, all the different variants. Okay, so I want to get in and clarify a little bit here, if I may, because one of the things that we have talked a lot about on race reviews and stuff like that is, oh, well, you know, different cars suit different tracks. So like the Mercedes does well at a track that has lots of low speed turns, but Red Bull does great at a track that has lots of high speed turns and long straights. Doesn't that to a certain extent also play into the idea that that different cars have different aero concepts in the sense that at the beginning of this, someone made a decision oh, we'll be most competitive if we make the car most efficient in this kind of a setting. Yeah, I mean, that also comes down to layouts in terms of things like wheelbase. Um, And then uh, you have to think about the way that the teams all use different power units. So they will obviously have different ways of using the allocated energy that's at their disposal, whether that be combustion side or from energy deployment on the electrical side of things. So all of these things will come into effect, as you say, uh, at the start of how the 
uh, team look at what they're going to produce. Um, and, and those discussions will be being had earlier earlier on uh, in this season to look for forward to 2024. And that's obviously where we've talked about before, the, the teams, as we've quite rightly mentioned earlier about time travel are always looking at the the past present and future um they're never living in one single moment uh because they're trying to study the past to understand how they can use that information to improve themselves right now and in the future uh, and that's quite a, a, an interesting path to follow especially when it comes to development as you know i've mentioned in the past about how long it takes for these ideas to go from um the 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 actual idea stage right through to development we can be talking weeks upon end and that also then has to be tied into logistically about where it falls into in terms of races and so that also bears out in terms of what you've just mentioned about circuit characteristics and the way that teams have to think about those updates that they're bringing uh, and whether they're going to be effective at a certain race or whether they delay them because they will be better served to be bought later on in the season. Okay, and that actually makes for a great segue to uh, the next question from Monster Man because they ask, when a driver from a top team crashes and the car has to be craned, it's always a huge deal to get a picture of the floor. How much does this actually help other teams uh, with research and development and potentially borrowing ideas? And I know I can see you salivating at answering this question. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that one of the key things about this particular rule set is the fact that um, the performance differentiator has become the underbody uh, performance that's created by the underfloor uh, and that all then bleeds outwards to, to everything else that that surrounds it on the car so whenever we do see a car from beneath there is obviously uh, you know uh, people running towards it to, to be able to get uh, those pictures and obviously the, the the main thing from my point of view is being able to compare them to images that we've seen in the past now, there is a situation whereby we might not have seen an update from a team that because we can't see the underside of the car. So from from my perspective, it's always very interesting to see these pictures once they're, they're up on the, the crane uh, because it's something that we don't see uh, like a front wing or a rear wing. They're very easy to see where the development has come from. But in terms of the floor, we don't get to see those things. Uh, I, I actually, I'm going through this year's development schedule at the moment for some um, articles that I'll be bringing out at the end of the season. And because it's such a long season this year, I'm having to prepare prepare them even earlier than I have in the past. Uh, And uh, it amazed me that when I looked back through these uh, updates that we've seen, how many of the updates we didn't see until much later when obviously the reveals happened because the cars were lifted. However, in terms of the teams and the way that they will accrue knowledge, they do get some of these photos ahead of time because all of the teams will use spy photography. So they'll have their own photographers in the pit lane trying to get the best images they can. And invariably, they will accrue images via the fact that the floors are carried into into the garages, etc. And we don't see those sort of things very often. Um, However... I do think there is some bleed off, especially with the top teams. 
So if we look back to when Red Bull's floor uh, was first seen at Monaco, there was a big hoo-ha about, oh, they're doing this X, Y, and Z, uh, certainly in terms of the way that they're using the expansion under the floor. And obviously, the the reason there was a lot of debate around this is because other teams weren't doing th- those similar things. And so it appeared that Red Bull were obviously one or two steps ahead of everybody else. Uh, and we have, over the course of the season, started to see other teams starting to borrow those ideas. Like I've said, though, it takes time. It's not something that you can literally just copy and paste and put it on the car. So you have to work your way through these things and there's a process involved. Right. And and to that end, so uh, let's take a team like Williams, which I I know I believe you have said, but or at least I, I have seen people say has some similarities broadly to Red Bull. So what you're suggesting is if they had already had the same general idea as Red Bull, obviously not as well developed because they don't have the same budget and, you know, uh, uh, decades worth of accrued information technology advantage and so forth. But if they were headed down the same general path, a picture of a Red Bull floor might be really useful to them as they're thinking about what to do with next year's car. Most certainly. Um, But there is only so much you can learn from a photograph. Um, And obviously we do have more rules in place in regards to uh, the the lending of information from one team to another in terms of photographery uh, that, you know, because of what happened in the past. However, (laughs) I I didn't say the words. Um, If, however, we're talking about Williams, Red Bull actually copied something from Williams, which was an interesting nugget, um, which they openly admitted uh, that they'd copied it from one of their rivals or they'd borrowed that idea from one of their rivals. And it was in in as much as the corner of the diffuser in which, you know, the the geometry of the corner of the diffuser. Um, And and that's now found its way onto the Red Bull. So it's not only the front teams that teams copy from, there's always good ideas. It's just how they're implemented and whether they're going to add performance to the car. Now, this was something that would come across as quite minor if you looked at it, you know, through through the photos. But um, from obviously the data point of view, Red Bull found that they, they found some performance in CFD in the wind tunnel, and, it, and it's now on the RB19. So it's not something that's isolated to just the top teams. Uh, all of the teams will be looking at one another to try to find the next big thing that will help them improve their performance. Okay. Um, and and so, like, just to contrast before we move on to our next question, a team, let's say, like Mercedes, would have a much harder time making direct use of that information because fundamentally their car works better under different circumstances. So that implies that how they're using all of their stuff wouldn't really necessarily be as well served by the information they glean from rivals who treat things differently. Yeah, but I would still say it could be applicable in as much as the way I've just mentioned about Red Bull uh, finding information from Williams because you right. know, although they do have very similar concepts in some ways, there is still you know a huge amount of differences in the, the dimensions that we're talking about on each car and the way that everything interacts with one another. Um, what I do think is that we tend to get 
trapped sometimes into just looking or hyper-focused on certain areas of the car rather than seeing it as a more general uh, overview uh, because of that's where the development always appears to, to, to be uh, heading in. Um, but yeah, certainly, obviously, uh, when you are looking at two cars that are very, very different to one another, the Red Bull and the Mercedes from one you know, for, for argument's sake, then that, yes, it is going to be difficult to make something that is transferable. Uh, and, and even more so, which I'm sure we we'll, might get back to later, in terms of the, the Mercedes, which is very much a Franken car this year. Uh, and, and obviously, they're having to do certain things that they will have to, to look at again into 2024. Uh, yeah. And although I am tempted to make a pub analogy here, I won't. Instead, I'll make a car analogy, which is like when you have that old car that's been running fine, and then you put the one new part on it, which we would say, oh, look, a picture of a Red Bull floor. Let's just stick that on the car. You put that one new part in, and then every other thing starts breaking. So it would be a similar thing. And that's why teams, that's why there's only so much immediate use a team can get out of, say, a picture of a floor like that. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about it on many occasions, and, and obviously I know you've lent this phrase before, but it's an aerodynamic handshake. You know, at the end of the day, all of these components talk to one another in, in many respects. And if they don't harmoniously talk to one another, then that's where the, they start to break down and, and have those issues. So, like you say, unless it's really going to work for them, they're not just going to simply press can control and C and, and control and V and, and, and be out of there because that just doesn't work in Formula One and it hasn't for a long time, not just this particular regulation set, but into the past as well. You know, when we're talking about people just thinking, oh, a front wing off of one car will work on another. It's not quite that simple because of how everything works in harmony with one another. Uh, yeah, persnickety is a word I would use. It, 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 it's very fickle, the wind. And and if you get slightly out of alignment, the entire the entire thing can break down. I've read some interesting stuff online, but I want to move us along a little bit here because how long have we been talking and tires haven't come up at all? I feel like I'm I'm missing out here. Like I'm not fulfilling my brand. Uh, we had a great question from Thomas Evans. Um, why do the front tires point in slightly and rear tires point out? Also, does tire, toe, and camber affect setup? And then what are the advantages or disadvantages? Now, again, I think, you know, encyclopedic books have been written about this. So we might have to be slightly briefer. But could, could you give us an overview of, of why teams, like what toe is, what camber is, and how teams use them to improve the performance of the tires? Yeah, I mean, again, this sort of thing is always a trade-off. Now, one thing that I did want to bring up, because obviously I did get wind of some of these notes, is there's a what I call a cheat sheet available uh, in the event notes section uh, of the, at each particular race. So I've pulled up the ones from Qatar to give us an example. Now, we're talking about camber. Now, that is one thing, obviously, that is in the range of what can and can't be changed. Um, but there is a limit that is invoked by Pirelli in order that the tyres aren't pushed beyond a certain point. And that is purely because uh, we had instances in the past where teams were running way beyond what was the recommended 
but was unenforceable limit of camber uh, back in, I think it was 2012. And you could right. start to see a line building up on the outside of the tyres because essentially what the, the, the camber does is it, it promotes a, a sort of V-shape in, in, in the, the setup. So, uh, you know, you'd have the, the tyres uh, lent in from, from uh, bottom to top. Now, the camber limit for uh, Qatar at the front was 2.75 degrees and at the rear was 1.5 degrees. Now, these are things that obviously Pirelli have worked out from their simulations and they can uh, adapt from race to race so that the teams don't push the tyres beyond a limit point that they believe to be a problem. Now, obviously, we, we reached beyond that limit point in, in Qatar uh, because of the fact that we had what I would call a very historical moment in Formula One, whereby we could only run a certain number of laps on a set of tyres. Yes. Um, but as I've mentioned, that limit is in place and has been in place for a, not only the entirety of this season, but obviously going into the history uh, books as well. And, and also, obviously, things that, you know, people may or may not be interested in are things like uh, tire pressure limits. They're very important in terms of performance. So teams would probably run them as low as they could possibly get away with, but they do have to stay within a minimum starting pressure. And then Pirelli now work on an expected stabilized running pressure, uh, which obviously they can now monitor from the the introduction of the the tire monitoring uh, that's available to them. So if we Again, look at what they had in Qatar. At the front, it was 25 PSI, and at the rear, 21.5 PSI. Now, that is extreme uh, for for the tyres. Uh, it is something that they were trying to bring down when we introduced the 18-inch tyres. Uh, but obviously, the teams have pushed beyond the limits of what um, Pirelli originally thought that would be happening this season. Uh, and so that's always the fight between the teams and and Pirelli. But just going back to the question, obviously, towing, tow out and camber are, are something that the teams will invariably try to to utilise in order to, to get a better setup in terms of tyre degradation. And obviously, in terms of the way that the, 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 the suspension reacts, etc. Um, but it is a, I don't like to say a black art because, you know, Tyres are a black art in many ways. Uh, some teams are just very good at it and other teams tend to, to struggle with that. But um, it is an area of performance that the teams have to f- very, very finely tune in order to get the very best out of them. Okay, so let me just understand this clearly. If I were to say, take my two hands and point the palms at each other mm-hmm. and then point my fingers at the ceiling, and then if I tilt my hands towards each other, or tilt them away from each other. That's camber, correct? Correct. Now, if I do the same thing, only I point my fingers straight ahead at each other or away from each other, that's toe. Toe in and toe out, yes. Okay. Now, now think of DAS, because DAS was effectively messing with that as well on a on a variable solution uh, in many ways. For So DAS was uh, something that, Mercedes introduced uh, several years ago now, but was banned almost immediately um, because it was, a, well, it, it was allowed to be run for a season, uh, but it was a, an idea that Mercedes had in sitting in a drawer and decided to to implement uh, purely because they, they had the capability to introduce it at that particular point. Uh, but obviously because it was a 
driver controlled um, setting that was being used during the course of uh, racing conditions, the FIA decided that it was something that they didn't want every team to exploit going forward. So they only allowed it for one season. But that was something that was working in that realm uh, and allowed adjustability during the course of a, a race. And if I tilt the wheels towards each other, camber, that would be negative camber. The advantage, as I understand it, is that when I go into a turn, all the weight goes to the outside, and then that wheel actually gets shoved fully onto its contact patch. So if I get the camber right, then I'll have more grip around that turn. Yeah, and as I mentioned, that's why we started to see teams go beyond what was considered to be the recommended limits because there was a a reason for that, increased performance. And so that's why now that we find that there's a limit in place to stop teams actually taking things too far and almost causing issues for Pirelli in as much as that we could have construction failures, which we had roughly around that sort of time uh, at Spa. Uh, I think it was Spa 2012, which was when all of this really came to a head, and that's when the limit was put in place. Okay, I have a next question, but first, I think I have a bumper. All right, we've we've been dancing around conceptually, but I think it's time for the rubber to meet the road so to speak and this is the question that i think everyone needs an answer to now we've seen mclaren show up and absolutely whoop on everybody but red bull and even there they've made it closer than it's been in the past but perhaps for reasons that aren't directly related to their upgrade and then we have mercedes which has sort of traditionally been the absolute rival to red bull Who's going to win in 2024? Tell us now, please, in a short sentence. I'm not sticking my money on that. Um, it's, <laughs> Wait, it, you're it, not going Ferrari, are you? Because uh, even if they have the best car, there's no way they're going to win. Uh, I, I often say this, but Ferrari tend to Ferrari themselves quite often. Um, it, it, unfortunately, it tends to be a trend uh, at Ferrari. I'm not saying that that will happen, and I really do hope that they uh, they move forward uh, for next year uh, and make a leap forward. I think they've got a good, a better handling on the car this year uh, and found ways to to improve performance. But in terms of McLaren and Mercedes, I think it's a very difficult one to call for next year. Um, I, I think there's various avenues that you can go down in terms of trying to understand the the mechanisms in which one might be better than the other. Uh, I do think that McLaren probably have a very good head start on Mercedes in many ways because they moved their concept more towards a Red Bull style layout uh, with their latest updates, which have come over the course of, of a, you know, a, a few uh, different uh, developments tranches let's say so we had the first one in austria uh which was followed up quickly in silverstone and i would call that probably update one which was basically a you know a major shift towards what we see from red bull Uh, and then we've had a a more recent update as well from them uh, which has really transformed the car once again so it's really started to come to life now uh but they did have a good platform let's just put that out there at the end of the day they, they you know you 
what they have changed are aerodynamic parts and the internal um, radiator positions, etc. So most of what they have done this season has come down to aerodynamic development, which means that they already had a decent platform. It, although, obviously, Lando Norris isn't quite happy with how uh, that transfers to his, his driving liking at, at times, but it's a quick car, isn't it? So, yeah, Astrid is too fast in it, basically, is his complaint. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, if we look at Mercedes, they, as I mentioned earlier in the show, have a Franken car. Now, the, yeah. way, the reason I call it a Franken car is because they started off the season with the zero pod solution. Uh, or a, a development of the, the zero pod solution and quickly realized that it wasn't the route that they realistically wanted to continue with. However, because of the way that the side impact protection spars are set up in the chassis um, and the position of the cockpit and all of those sort of things, they, those are things that you can't really change in season because you can't re homologate a chassis under the cost cap. It, it's almost impossible um, based on, the rest of the development that you must do throughout the course of the season to, to maintain the, the gap to your rivals. So they've kind of had to come along with this halfway solution that re- maintains the uh, chassis elements whilst changing the aerodynamic profile of the side pods and the associated things like the floor that go with that engine cover, etc., um, which, which has done them fine and allowed them to close the gap somewhat. However, it isn't the entire story, and we all know that they've been working on a parallel development plan for 2024, which is obviously very different to the plan that they started off in 2023. So although we sort of see a diverging development structure for 2023, I do think they will start to converge again for 2024, and we'll see something more akin to the McLaren and the Red Bull on the Mercedes. Uh, But I still think, you know, at the end of the day, they are fundamentally different teams and they approach things from a different way of development. So there will be differences. Um, Most of the time, I think most people think if you made all the cars white, you couldn't tell the difference between them. I mean, clearly I can because someone's tried that on me before. Um, But for for, for the most part, I think most people might struggle between the McLaren and the Red Bull as they are currently set out now. I think the most interesting part will be how Red Bull developed going into 2024 uh, because of, obviously, the progress they've made this season. Um, But I'm very, very happy that McLaren have made the step they have uh, because we did need another team to to, to vault the the gap between uh, the midfield and the front end. And McLaren have obviously done that. We all obviously thought it was going to be Aston Martin at the start of the season, but they didn't quite make the leap we all thought. Uh, But I think it will be very, very tight between Mercedes and McLaren for next season. Uh, But I do have the sneaking suspicion of a voice in the back of my head, and it might be Ron Dennis telling me about how a works team will always beat a customer team. Wow, that's a very interesting thing. And it's astonishing to me how high a hurdle a simple letter from the FIA can be for certain teams when they look like they have made a leap. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I'm referencing. You, the, you're, go, the, you're going there, are you? I, I just, I'm just mentioning it, the whole aeroelasticity thing. But I just wanted to be clear about something between McLaren and Mercedes before we we go and have some some ridiculous gossip mongering fun with that. Um, Mercedes 
came with the zero pods and came with a car that had to be designed a specific way for the zero pods. And when they realized that wasn't their route, they were inherently, as you said, a Franken car. There was no way they could actually implement the full idea that they had for the other path they thought would be successful. McLaren told us, essentially, we had, we realized slightly too late for the 23 season, because it's 23 now. I don't even know what year it is anymore. That's how old I am. Uh, we 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 had this idea, but it was a little bit late. So we just essentially decided to go the other direction with our Franken car. We sort of put the underlying chassis in place so that when we were finally able to build it all, we'd have the car we'd want to hang it on. Is, is that sort of what, and that's why we saw this wildly diverging performance between McLaren and Mercedes is because Mercedes was able to just bodge things immediately and get some performance. Whereas McLaren really had to wait until Austria Silverstone before they were able to start strapping on the parts that they really wanted to go to battle with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the easy way to look at this uh, is to go and have a look at the side pod inlet and the actual design of the side pod itself. So in Mercedes' case, if you look at that, you will see a more traditional inlet, which is housed beneath the side impact protection spar because of the way it's in, hidden inside the fairing, which is pushed right the way forward, uh, probably right to the limit of the, the regulations. If you look at McLaren, they have a, a, a high po- high positioned um, inlet, very much in the same realms of the Red Bull, which if we look at the previous regulation set, this is an idea that's borrowed essentially from that regulation set and just implemented in a slightly different way. Uh, and it's all to do with tyre wake. You know, it's how teams deal with the, the problem of the tyre wake, how they increase performance to the undercut of the side pod and how they deliver performance to the rear of the car over the, the side pod and the floor. In terms of the McLaren, because they'd already started down the downwash ramp solution, uh, but didn't fully integrate it in, in the same way as Red Bull, as you say, structurally inside the side pods, they were pretty much set up to, to make this change. Whereas Mercedes just aren't anywhere near that realm because of the, the way in which that they started the season with the zero pod. So it's all down to how uh, the chassis integrates with uh, these these aerodynamic structures that we're talking about and how you you move the airflow around them in order to get the the best performance from them, uh, whilst also obviously taking into account everything else that's happening in terms of the underfloor, you know, and and everything else that's going on around the car. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The teams don't often agree on much. But one of the interesting things I've been noticing is pretty much all the teams are saying at this point for the season, we've come to the point where we need to fundamentally change some things with the chassis in order to find more performance. And so uh, as interesting as that question was uh, from Daz about McLaren and Mercedes, it also kind of brings into focus this next question from SN893, which is, how much performance is left to extract from this rule set? Now, if I'm Pirelli, this is always a dangerous question, and I always underestimate exactly how much is left. But we're also talking about um, relative performance here. Are we starting to get into much more marginal gains for Red Bull than, say, McLaren or Mercedes or Ferrari or you know, even Alpine, if they get the engine variants they're seeking from the FIA. I still think there's probably a great deal of performance left on the table in terms of these regulations. And I, I think one of the main contributors I will mention to that is how late uh, changes were made to the floor scenario uh, for 2023. So obviously we made changes to the floor edge, uh, we raised it, etc., uh, which obviously had an impact on development schedules for everybody because they'd already got things in the tunnel at that stage and then were suddenly have to, having to make changes. Uh, in terms of um, can Red Bull stay ahead of the pack, I think yes, unfo- not unfortunately, but in terms of the the fact that we, we, want, more, we want more teams that are, are converging on one another for better racing, so I think from a performance point of view, I think we'll see Red Bull continue to uh, to push forward. I think the other teams have, have closed that gap somewhat. Um, however, I think the other thing that we have to think about here is the way in which that the CFD and wind tunnel usage and the allocation that, the, that each of the teams have obviously has a bearing on how much that the teams can uh, do compared to their rivals. So, uh, that has started to kind of impact certain teams. But I think over the course of a season, the teams get used to that. And, you know, they're, they're having to concentrate on on di- parallel developments, uh, both on the current car and their future cars. So it's always a fighting battle between uh, what's going on the car now, what's going on in the future, next year's car, et cetera, et cetera. So it's what you give and take between those projects to be able to get the best out of it. Uh, but I do think there's still a huge amount of performance on the table and certain teams still haven't copied certain other aspects of certain cars uh, that are obviously got a performance advantage. And so, you know, there's there's still more there. That That's the simple fact of the matter. When we were in old regulation sets, sort of the 2009 to 2013, we thought, oh, we're not going to see anything more of in terms of improvements. And then all of a sudden, somebody had come along with a exhaust-blown diffuser and they changed the landscape. So I'm not saying we're going to have that kind of development, but there's always something out there that will add performance. And uh, the the Formula One engineers just know how to find those, those, uh, those areas of interest. 
Uh, so you heard it here first. Williams will be the next Braun next season. Thank you, Summers, very much for that. Now, um, okay, so this also gets into an, another thing that that has been talked about a lot, and especially, I mean, I don't want to accuse you of chasing clicks, but you've written a fair amount about outwash this season and the teams chasing it and sometimes even already being from back. And uh, our listener, UWS kid, which as a New Yorker, I always translate as Upper West Side kid, asks, are we back to the previous regulation set when it comes to dirty air as the teams have found all these loopholes with the rear wing and the front wing and stuff like that? Now, I'm going to add, I'm going to make this a famous multi-part question. I'm going to add on to that. Or is it possible that the raising of the floor edges and diffuser throat has also contributed to the uh, much obvious and larger difficulty? I mean, I think at uh, Qatar, they were some, some, some teams were seeking like an eight-second cap for qualifying in order to be entirely clear of dirty air. So is this more than just a simple, the teams have been once again more clever than the FIA? Yeah, I mean, we've had this discussion off air uh, uh, regarding the fact that the way in which the rules had to be changed uh, to deal with the porpoising issue uh, by raising the, the, the floor and dealing with the throat, all this sort of thing, has undoubtedly had an impact on the way in which that the rules were first envisaged because those simulations were based on something completely different to what we have now. That's not to say that it's the only thing. As you've already mentioned, we've got things uh, in terms of front wing development like we have on the Mercedes where they've figured out a way to uh, create a, a slotted section on the end plate, which was never really envisaged uh, within these regulations. We've got uh, cascade elements on the inboard side of the end plate which were never envisaged and those are on sort of the Red Bull, the Ferrari, the Mercedes the McLaren, all sorts of cars. Um, and those all obviously contribute to outwash. I think the one thing that the regulations were trying to reduce in its effect because of the way that that creates this dirty air problem and, and the wake. Um, then obviously we've got things like the, the rear wing end plate uh, and the cutouts that have suddenly started to appear. And these are all things that at the end of the day, the teams are looking for ways to find performance and they do not care about the fact of the dirty air. They, they, it's not their problem. They they are just they are simply behind there. them's problem. Yeah, they're, they're just trying to make performance at the end of the day. Um, right. So they don't care that the, the, the rules don't explicitly tell them not to create outwash or not to do X, Y, or Z with the rear wing. They're looking for ways to increase performance and these are the routes that they're taking to do so. Uh, however, I don't think we are quite at the same level as we were in the past in terms of this problem with dirty air. And I don't think we probably will get to that stage, uh, especially if we have a wind back in certain areas like the front wing and the, the rear wing solutions that we're seeing. Obviously, that's not going to happen for next year, I wouldn't have thought, because we've, you know, that we're, we're past in that the, point. Yeah. Uh, but I do see that that might be an area that the FIA may look to to deal with in future. However, I do think they need to be you know mindful of this problem because at the end of the day, if we're trying to create a scenario where uh, closer racing is a thing, having the dirty air problem 
is a major issue because the, the drivers will just get into a position like we were under the old regulations where they can't overtake and we are fully reliant on DRS once more, um, which again, you know, as I've mentioned in the past, is a solution that although it was a Band-Aid has dealt with that problem in some manner. Uh, I don't, still yeah. don't think it's the right way to use it, but it, you know, it, it's there and it's available to to the teams and the drivers. So, um, I do see a, a point where the FIA have to step in and, and deal with this problem again. But as we stand right now, I think uh, I think it's okay. Uh, but I do I do see some time in the future where we might have to address it. Okay, we've had a lot of fun answering listener questions and we've sort of danced around it earlier with Aston but I'm going to get to it one of the biggest tech stories and it's especially big because I know certain people actually got to see this particular technical directive yeah I I have no idea who I'm referring to but I know this happened because I saw stories about it was that there was some controversy about using aeroelasticity, which is the bendy, wibbly parts, um, uh, on the floor and on the front wing to gain advantage. But there were some interesting details to that. Now, I have to ask you, Red Bull said it didn't affect us at all. But ever since then, everyone's been a lot closer to them. But most especially, I have to really ask you about Aston, because they look for all the world like the team that would be chasing Red Bull all season long. This happened. And and I mean, is it just a remarkable coincidence or a perfectly normal coincidence that from when this happened, they have lost a great deal of performance and have been unable to regain it thus far. Okay, so we've got a typical Matt Trumpet 79-part question. Uh, let's just cover what happened. Okay, so we had two technical directives in the main, one covering the front wing and one covering the rear wing. The front wing was to do with the way in which that the uh, front wing elements are connected to the nose uh, and the elasticity involved in the movement there. And then the rear wing was to do with rotation uh, and the way in which that the wing uh, folds back at speed. Uh, now, these are areas of, uh, of development that we have seen for years. It is nothing new in Formula One. It's all about where the development is pushed uh, towards in order to make gains. Uh, teams have, have been doing it for, for decades, in fact, let alone you know, the last decade or so uh, with, with carbon aeroelasticity. Um, there was some interesting uh, comments made in the technical directives in terms of elastometric fillets, uh, which means that essentially rubberized sections of the wing and nose connections. And if you look at the onboards, you can quite clearly see a huge... Uh, amount of flex on the front wings and i'm not just talking about one team here i'm talking about up and down the grid but it becomes as usual uh, about how much it's been done and who by it's been done and how they're doing it and what it's achieving for them so 
and the mode that it's happening in. So in these circumstances, we're usually talking about drag situation uh, because right. they're trying to bleed drag off uh, for, from the car um, at high speeds. And that obviously, you know, you can move that lower and lower depending on how much you can bend the specific area. Um, in terms of Red Bull and has it pegged them back, I think undoubtedly there is some difference in terms of the performance gap between them and the other teams since the TD arrived and has been uh, put in place. So, yes, I would suggest that it has dialed them back slightly. However, you also have to remember that the other teams have also been pegged back by it, so they've also lost performance, but they haven't lost it to such a margin. So it's a, a very interesting thing to look at. If we go to Aston Martin, though, um, although I believe that they did get impeded by this, I think part of their problem is, is that they took some development um, cul-de-sacs. They went down some cul-de-sacs that didn't work uh, and, right. and they've had to U-turn on those. And that is problematic because it means that you've essentially lost a huge amount of, uh, amount of time in your CFD and wind tunnel and you've had to backtrack effectively. You've got into it yourself into a, a bit of a corner and you might have lost sort of eight to 10 to 12 weeks worth of work uh, and suddenly you, you've, you're starting from zero again. So I think that's partly where we are with Aston. I think, yes, all of the teams were pegged back, including Aston, with the TDs and other stuff that's been going on behind the scenes with flexibility, whether it be front wing floor or rear wing. Uh, but obviously... Um, I think it's fair to say that they've also struggled with some conceptual issues, such as the uh, side pod gullies, uh, because they, they're the one that were at the forefront of that particular development. Uh, sorry, I was just busy selling all my stock in aluminum foil. <laughs> Have you not fashioned your hat correctly? No, I'm not. Apparently not after that answer. Um. Okay, so... If I'm Aston, well, and and this this also interests me because didn't they didn't that fundamental concept now now we're talking about the water slide concept here didn't that originate really with Alpine? It did, and, and then Aston Martin came out at the start of the season with a, a much more developed version of that concept. However, they also then upgraded or updated, as I like to to suggest, rather than upgrading, because an upgrade suggests that it actually improves performance. Yeah. And in their case, it was an update because it didn't actually provide the performance that they thought it was going to. And they've sort of had to sidetrack and backtrack a little bit in, in many respects on certain parts of the car, uh, including their front wing and, and the side pod solution. So Aston is a difficult one this year, especially because of what's happened with McLaren and the, and the upsurge that they've had in terms of performance, who have also taken on the water slide gully solution as well and obviously uh, had good success with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I still have a pet theory that the real magic here, and this is just based on, I, I think we had this discussion, that, that McLaren still does their own transmission. But I feel like there there is a... Well, you know what? There was actually a listener question about this. Okay, I don't know who the listener was. They asked the question, sent an email. Um, my pet theory is that a lot of the performance is being hidden at the rear of the car. 
and how exactly like I, I can't explain fully why I think this, but just having looked at everything, it, it seems like it always comes down to how compliant you can be. You can make your suspension while still maintaining an incredibly stable aerodynamic platform. Red Bull has obviously done the best. The car looks more like the pre-22 cars than any other one when it bounces, when it goes over curbs and bumps and stuff like that. But somehow they keep everything stable so they don't lose all of their downforce. So the question was, when we saw this regulation start, we had a sudden explanation. Everyone got explained to them what a push rod front end and rear end was and what a pull rod front end and rear end was. And two years into these regulations, have we come to any conclusions about one being necessarily the correct or the more correct choice for these regulations than the other, both at the front and at the back? See, the, the reason that this is coming up is because the two front runners, if yep. you're classifying McLaren as a and front runner exactly, now, yep. it, it, it's a pull rod at the front and a push rod at the rear. Now, for me and my money, that is probably the better solution for this particular regulation set, only though because of the way that we are set up at the rear of the car in terms of uh, the amount of diffuser space that is required uh, for the, the ground effect tunnels. I'm calling them ground effect tunnels. It's not really that sort of thing. But anyway, um, push rod at the rear allows you more space, technically, to be able to do this sort of thing. So... I'm not saying it's the, the 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 best way to do it. There's, it's a trade off. It always is, and I think the trade off comes in, as you mentioned, the best way of keeping a stability and the aerodynamic platform, um, whilst thinking about the packaging scenario. So, if we go to the front end for argument's sake, uh, with the Red Bull and the McLaren having Pull rod. Pull. Yeah. Their aerodynamic profile from the front wing to the side pods, which is incredibly important, and from the front wing to the leading edge of the floor, which is incredibly important, is very different to the aerodynamic profile of a car that has a push rod so not, so, solution because of the way you set the fairings up. Uh, on top of that, you have things in terms of packaging. So you, you're, you're, you're playing around with weight in this scenario. And we're not talking huge amounts of weight, but we're talking about weight because of the position of the elements inboard of a push yeah. versus pull rod. Uh, and also allows some interesting packaging scenarios. So let's think about what Red Bull have done this season with their chassis. Now they have a, what I would call a V-shaped chassis where they've cut away the, the, the side cross-section of the chassis uh, more so than anybody else. Um, which is obviously advantageous in allowing the airflow to, to move in that particular area of the car. So these things, as we've already said in the past, are things that compound with one another. You add them step by step. And if I'm going to use, if we've we've already talked about golf at the, that's the start of this live stream. Oh, let's talk about it more because you I and would, I both love to play a good game of uh, golf. I would describe it as something that we use in golf called strokes gained. Right. So strokes gained is when essentially you work out how, how uh, from a development point of view, how far you get down, you, you will gain strokes on the field. Now, this is something that Formula One teams are essentially doing because they're working on how to compound every decision they make. 
to the point where it adds performance. And that's where we're kind of at with the likes of, of Red Bull. They're already past the point of understanding the the overall concept of the car, and they're now adding performance by compounding things down the car. Uh, everything you look at on that car is just much more honed compared to uh, 2022. As I mentioned earlier, I'm working on uh, some of the stuff to, to deal with at the end of the season. And one of those is, is a look at the Red Bull. And it's very interesting to look, now look back and compare it with last year's car and how much progress that they made between 22 and 23 on very, very interesting areas of the car. Things like brake ducts, uh, the chassis design, the way they've set the side pods up, the input, the improvements that they've made on the underfloor design. They've just compounded everything. Um, and, and other teams are still learning those areas. Yeah, well, other teams should have perhaps spent more money coming into the first season of these new regulations. Yes, prawn sandwiches. Prawn sandwiches. Needed more of them. Um, We haven't really talked about, but I think there's one sort of big tech story. And by big, I mean like literally quantitatively big tech story. <laughs> Heading into Austin. And, and you mentioned them earlier, Haas, just being, well, you know, I think dreadful would be acceptable they would they they would probably laugh at me because it wouldn't adequately describe how bad it's been for them but they put all of their cookies into the uh, basket at circuit of the americas to the point where i've read they actually had to rent a special garage to get started on their build because they would they didn't think they necessarily have enough time if they waited till they could just get the cars and things to the track yeah, now this is interesting because I would compare this to Mercedes at what was going to be Imola and turned out to be Monaco with their updates. Right. So if you remember, um, I know it's a long time ago in Formula One terms now, but Imola obviously got cancelled and Mercedes were going to turn up with their new side pod solution, which was not the zero pod. Now, people exclaimed when they arrived in Monaco with an entirely new car, which included this new side pod solution. Uh, and why are you doing it at this particular venue? Because it's so difficult to introduce new parts, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they'd gone past the point of no return, whereby there was modifications made to the car that couldn't be U-turned because they'd made them in the name of this new, new update for the side pods. And I think we're going to see very much a, a similar scenario unfold here with Haas in as much as that, the upgrade to their side pods is also an update to the internal packaging of the car. And, you know, that's why they're in this situation where they're having to get ahead of time to be able to, to get the build right ahead of getting to the circuit and then obviously fit the bodywork, etc. So some of these updates, although you see them, everybody now sees the uh, car presentation documents, uh, yes. you know, which uh, should be, be available to the public and they are yes they're on the fia website now yes they, they um, are on the fia website except for one race they weren't for reasons that i still don't understand i think it was i think it might have been japan i've looked for it but it's not there i have it yeah. obviously but that's by the by so by the, the wayside um but you know the teams only have to be so specific with those things they don't have to tell you everything and there's still a lot of working out that has to be done behind the scenes, which is obviously what I do. Um, and certainly the one thing that doesn't get 
talked about is the change of internal packaging because you only have they only have to talk about aerodynamic things you know they'll only talk about our oh, change to the, the front wing flap and we've added it to gurney here or, or there but they don't have to talk about internal changes so there's a lot of things that do continue to change that aren't on those particular lists and i think that's pro- partly where we will see uh, has looking externally very different but there will be a lot more under the skin that's changed that most people won't be able to see. And so I'm going to ask, even though I'm afraid I already know the answer, does this big, because they've said it's going to look more like a Red Bull, but does this really represent a, a sort of a fundamental break with their, we buy everything from Ferrari, or are they once again letting themselves be used as a test bed indirectly because directly would be absolutely illegal and i don't mean to suggest they're doing that but i mean are they helping ferrari out here by running what would be you know next year's parts along with themselves to be fair or or are they really just going to go their own direction from here on out i do know something matt i think you need to go and buy we buy and we buy everything from ferrari.com as a as a url but uh no <laughs> I, I i honestly don't think that's the direction that they're they're taking I, I i think that they're over the years they've been unfairly in some ways ascribed to just copying everything ferrari do now yes they do fundamentally go in the same direction as ferrari but when you're buying a, a huge amount of the car structure from that particular supplier and you have their power unit then you know you you probably are going to follow that direction is the 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 proper way to do it uh but it obviously will always put you behind the eight ball as well because you're always following somebody and you're never actually uh making things uh develop uh, your own um pathway you know you're not starting something uh, from scratch uh, and building out from there like you know everybody else does up and down the grid instead you're sort of following in the wake of somebody uh, but i do think that this update from Haas is them stepping out in their own direction in some ways and yes it is a major step towards what you will probably see from them in 2024 in fact you probably see a very very similar car in 2024 this is probably just uh, a very early tease of that uh, and then fundamentally they will change things on the chassis that they can't do uh, this season. And they're going to learn in the back end of this season what the 2024 car is going to perform like in, in some respects, just as everybody else is doing. You know, that most, most of the teams now are either bringing circuit-specific updates, things that improve, you know, downforce and, and drag levels for the specific circuit characteristics we're going to, or they're looking at things that will improve the 2024 car and you know fundamentally might have an impact on this year's car um but we're not really going to see any proper 2023 developments anymore because this year's kind of spent in that respect so i i do wish i could remember exactly the language they use when they tell the teams what they have to show us well it can be different but if it's certain amount different, then yeah, you do have to show us. But if it's just this kind of different, yeah, we don't really care so much. And it is it is kind of funny how the teams will look at that um, and just choose to either include stuff or not, depending upon how they feel like it. 
real quick before we end this on a uh, high tire note, I I do want to mention that that I have seen McLaren touting their use of recycled carbon fiber. And, and, and one of our live chat participants asked about this earlier and said, is this a real thing? Is it just greenwashing? And I do know McLaren also because they worked with B-Comp and that they brought in the um, flax composite as, as a substitute for carbon fiber, which in some specifications works very well, but it's a bit heavier. It doesn't necessarily always have exactly the same, same kind of structural integrity that 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 they look for so what's your what's do you have an opinion on this do you even know anything about it yeah i mean as you started talking then i was going to mention Comp because they made a seat from that flax material uh, as a as a way of showing the fact that obviously this technology was available uh although obviously as you mentioned it isn't something that can be used in its entirety around the 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 structure of the car it can only be used in a very specific way and in terms of the carbon fiber side of things yes i i understand uh what mclaren are looking to do in terms of reducing the footprint of the components that they are generating and and obviously recycling or upcycling components in order to uh reduce their output now as far as i understand it they're going to use it in areas of the car firstly that aren't really structurally uh, an issue and i believe it's to do with the you know those rotating advertising hoardings that they've got on the side of the the cars the the little panels i believe that's what they're they're making this from to start with um but it is something that they can scale uh, a little bit little bit more in terms of perhaps bodywork. i think from an interesting point of view uh i think there's a limit to where this can be utilized so if it's a stressed member then it's going to need to be something that is produced from scratch uh whereas uh things like front wing flaps or uh, a side pod panel etc could can obviously be uh made from a recycled component for argument's sake so i think it's an interesting thing with with mclaren they as you've already mentioned they tend to to head in this direction and i don't think it is fantastical in many ways in terms of uh you know the approach that they're going to take is something that is out of this world but it it's something that will add up over time and if it continues to be used then other teams will bring will see a a benefit from it and obviously the cost implication and when you're under cost cap you've got to find ways to improve things from a cost side of put side of uh the, the the coin so i think that is obviously on their mind and that is an area where all of the teams will look at in the future not only from a green point of view but from a you know from a a monetary point of view yeah well i mean and yeah i hate to bring up road relevance but it, it does seem like one of those things like one of the biggest issues with using carbon fiber in road cars is it's expensive to lay it up but if you've got it and you can recycle it then, well, you save weight on a car, then you get better fuel mileage, you get a better performance. There's a lot of good that will come out of it. I want to finish with tires. Of course. And and I just, it doesn't have to be the longest explanation. But we saw, for we, we've seen Ferrari 
be very positive about getting on top of their tire degradation. And usually that means that they figured out some kind of some kind of uh, COP thing where they've got their aero pressure now sorted out or they've got their mechanical balance, their center of gravity worked out a little bit better. But they really very specifically mentioned their energy deployment was actually causing them a great deal of hassle with their tire degradation. And I, I wondered if before we go, you could shed any insight on on how those things interplay. Yeah, it's obviously uh, to to borrow from um, a previous era. Think of turbo lag, and obviously the fact that you would wait and wait and wait and wait for for the turbo to finally spool. Close your eyes and think of turbo lag. I don't yeah. know why I want to say that, but I just had to. I remember Santa Pod very clearly with with uh, turbo lag and, and the problems that I had setting up a car one day. But um, yeah, so. Huge amounts of turbo lag. All of a sudden, you get all that boost all at once, and suddenly you're breaking traction because you've got too much uh, performance all at once. And I think this is perhaps where Ferrari have found that they had issues: is traction, tractability um, under certain scenarios. And so, by being able to dial things back slightly, not only are they going to then improve the performance from a tire deck point of view they're improving lap time performance because they're not suddenly sliding with the tires as much and they're also improving their deployment because they've got then more energy at the top end because they've not spent as much in the lower end so it's sort of a a payback scenario where you you, you're gaining from doing something a little bit less at the start and I think that's probably where we're looking at with Ferrari in terms of the energy deployment is that they've just found a better way of deploying um, throughout a certain stage in the, you know, the sort of rev range. Okay. Well, I got to say, thanks so much for taking the time to come and explain these things to us and answer my ridiculous multi-part questions. Uh, where can we find you these days? Well, the best place to find me is the place that I think is called X now, is it? Or is it still called Twitter? I mean, I still call it Twitter. I've still got it as the Twitter app. So You know you know us old people. It's, yeah. it's named whatever it was named when I learned it the first time. I don't care how many times you change it afterwards. So, yeah, I'm Summers F1 on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week, Elon. Love it. As for me, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters or the X's or whatever, as you said, you want to call it, and pretty much every other social media outlet, except for TikTok, for some reason. I don't know why. And um, I just want to say thanks, everyone, for listening and remind you that we will see you around 9.30 p.m. UK time. Subtract five if you're on the East Coast like me for the live review of the Circuit of the Americas Grand Prix. And until then, talk tires, think arrow, and remember, little worlds make bigger worlds, and so on to viscosity. This has been Mist Apex Tech Time.
Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.